0: You're listening to audio from Hope Fellowship Church of Jaffrey, New Hampshire. If you'd like to check out more resources or to donate to this ministry, please visit hfcnh.org. Kind of close out this Old Testament, looking forward to what's coming. Yes, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the life of Jesus, that is coming. We know that. But before we get there, we have to kind of grapple with this time in which the people of God are, are longing for answers. They're, they're hoping for something to be completed. They're wanting shalom, this peace and wholeness. And I would dare say that many people today are longing for the exact same thing. And so we, we have this longing, we have these, uh, a lot of unanswered questions, right? And so we're walking through the Old Testament there's so many unanswered questions and things we want answers to now and yet there will be a period of time after the book of Malachi written around 435 BC where you will have around 400 years of silence in some sense where we have no written prophetic account in God's word. The time in between the Old Testament and the New Testament, yes, God was working and things were happening, but in our testaments the way we have it today, the Hebrew Bible and the the New Testament, the Greek New Testament, there's about 400 years there of an intermission, you could say. Act one of the play has happened. We take an intermission, we go get some popcorn or something, right? And then we come back and, and act two begins where season one ends, that you've just binge-watched 10 episodes, and then you take a break, right? And you're waiting for what is going to happen in season two. And and as this time between happens, we think about even the Olympics, where an Olympic event happens, and then four years of preparation to wait until they finally get a chance again to compete in the Olympics. And You know, you can think about the off seasons in sports and then the season starts in the off season. There's this time in between where there's a lot of waiting. There's a lot of anticipation. And I think especially as some of the themes we're looking at today, there is a lot of unanswered questions. There's a lot of waiting. There's a lot of anticipation. There's a lot of hopefulness. (laughs) Like, I hope God is in control and the people are crying out. We need help. There's a lot of things that aren't right. Isaiah nine six actually says that I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. I'm gonna, I'm gonna make you a light for the nations, right? And yet that doesn't always seem to be the way it's working out. In the Old Testament, when we look at, I'm not sure if I told the booth here, but if you have the slide from last week, it's the um, one with all the, the, the series of um, Of all the minor prophets and major prophets, that slide, do we have that one? I don't know if we have, there it is. So um, I just say things and it happens. Okay, I, I didn't get up there earlier, but this whole Old Testament, all these prophets, we're looking from the early prophets to the later ones, Malachi being the end, Joel and Jonah being the beginning. And you have all of these prophets speaking messages into all these different time periods when the divided kingdom was happening, when the people went away into exile, when they were in captivity in Babylon, and then they come back from that time period, back from post-exilic time, and they're trying to rebuild the temple. They're trying to rebuild the broken down city that was burned and weighed laced And there is, in those time periods, in every position, there, there's a sense of, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. This isn't complete. There's Sol- Solomon and the grandeur and the power and the might and the gold and the temple and the massive accomplishments and then the downhill slide where things are chaotic. The Babylonians come in, the Assyrians come in, the city is burned, the temple's destroyed, the people are taken in chains to a faraway nation. They're coming back, trying to rebuild with scant resources and, and the temple they try to rebuild at the end is, is pales in comparison and, and all along they're asking questions of, what is going on, Lord? <laughs> you promised Abraham and Jacob and Isaac. You promised. Moses you promised them this great nation you promised that we would be a light to the world you promised that all the world would be blessed through us and yet we don't see how this is going to happen Have you ever been that in life you you see something going on you 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 trust the promises of God you but it doesn't seem to be working out the way that you expected it to work out right and certainly the people of God thought the same thing When all of a sudden the promised land that had been given to them, they're in that promised land and all of a sudden, bang, they're outside of the promised land. They're taken away to a foreign land, into Babylon, into a world and a culture they do not know or do not understand. Their minds at times must have been spinning, frustrated with what is God doing? Is he in control? Does he have a plan? So there in my mind today, I'm gonna be communicating some of these things that I feel as if if we were to encompass all of the prophets today, but especially some of the later ones, as we think about what is, what is it that the conversation would have been happening between God's people and God. So today I want us to think in, in light of this conversation that might have been happening. Where the people uh, scream or, or cry out or, or tell God the things that, yea, yes, maybe they have done and then God will provide them with an answer. And God speaks through his prophets and reminds the people of God, even in the chaos or in the darkness or in the exile or in hardship, that that he is good. He has a plan for their future and he keeps his promises. You can trust his character. He keeps his promises and he has a plan for the future. Like Lars was saying, look forward. This is so much of what he's saying. And as, as, as Lars was saying, even, I didn't know he was going to share all these things, but this concept of looking back to what the old things, rather than wanting things that are coming that are new. And uh, Ian Duguid, a writer, says, it, it, in this time period, it's, it's not as if God is, uh, Israel is just going to finally turn over a new leaf and figure it out. No, it is that God is doing something new. And what we see in every one of these prophets is God consistently reminding the people, I am doing a new thing. I am going to work newness into your old barren state. I am bringing a new birth, he says. I'm bringing a new covenant, he says. I'm gonna give you a new spirit, a new heart. I'm building a new temple, giving you a new life. This is what is called in the new covenant or what we would say today in the New Testament is what's coming But before we get there, there's this intermission and a conversation going on throughout all of these prophets where the people say, we have broken the law. We have broken your covenant. We have sinned against you. The people say, we are a conquered people now. We are no longer in the promised land. How are you going to work out your promises? Do you know what you're doing? And God gives them an answer. We are a scattered people, they say. We are no longer gathered together. We're spread all out. Our enemies have scattered us in the wind. And then... The most disturbing aspect of this, the people of God tell them and admit wholeheartedly to God that your presence has left the building. Your presence has left the temple. The temple has been destroyed. The presence of God, the the sign of God's favor among Israel that it dwelt within the tabernacle, it dwelt within the temple, existed among God's people there and in Jerusalem. Now in Ezekiel, we see that God's presence leaves the building. It leaves the presence. The presence leaves And then God tells them, I have an answer for this as well. I'm doing a new thing. Trust me. And God in his tenderness speaks to the people. He says in Isaiah 49, 19, can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on her son of her womb? Like a nursing child, can you forget that child that you even have it? Even these may forget, though we might even forget that. Yet I, he says, will not forget you. I won't even forget you. And so what's clear is the northern, the southern tribes, Israel has forgotten God and their law and his goodness, but the fact of the matter is that God reminds them consistently through every prophet, I will judge you for your wickedness, yes, I will, but I will remember you and I will not forget you and I will save you. I am your salvation. Trust in me. And so we get these kinds of big overarching things. And so the first thing I want us to look at is just this concept, um, this concept of of the uh, people having broken the covenant law and God's answer to the people in in spite of this. Or he is going to provide a solution for this. For, again, they are not going to be just turning over a new leaf and figuring it out on their own. God is the one who's doing a new thing. And so sin has to be dealt with. When we read the prophets, when you read the Old Testament, this is maybe where you get some of the sense of this angry God that some people like to talk about. That God is just this person who's just uh, can't wait to bring destruction upon the people. But sometimes we forget to read the entirety of the book and maybe only read the first couple chapters that talk about the judgment that's coming. But we forget to skip to the end like we did last week, right? We look to the ends of all these minor prophets that speak hope and love and grace and mercy over and over and over And so yes, the people have been unfaithful. They've committed spiritual adultery and idolatry. Uh, God is saying, I will not be mocked. I must judge this sin, for sin is utterly offensive to God. And so we notice strikingly in the prophets that, that God is pure and he is holy I think if you were to look in the Word of God and you, you, you read it, and you are taken aback with, with some major themes, some major meta-narratives. And the fact is, one of the major meta-narratives that we must get ingrained in our head is that God is God, and we are not. We have sinned against Him, and He is holy. And that sense of holiness is hard to even describe at times and to communicate. But there is a holy otherness to God. He is great and almighty, pure and holy, eternal, and something other than us. And so there is a sense in our hearts that we must grapple with this. We must have this sense in our mind that that there is no we have no business in dealing with God. He is completely other. And what he does is holy. Our sin is offensive to him. And so this sense is is a is a place to start. It's not a place to end. We know that that is the start, that this is the start of our sin and God's holiness, that he is pure and we are not. We, at the end of the day, in the scripture, we, we learn that, yes, we are sinners. God is holy. We need a God to save us from our sin. This is a, a basic theme. And we, we see this even in the major prophets, in the minor prophets, or the people of God are crying out for God to rescue them. And so time after time we see the Old Testament display this sense of God's holiness and God's people breaking his law and sinning against him and that we aren't getting out of this mess by ourselves. I enjoy watching nature shows with my kids as I've shared with you sometimes. And uh, you know, there's a new show called like the Serengeti or something I think. It's just incredible footage of all the animals in Africa and I love that kind of stuff. Maybe you do and my girls love watching it with me. Occasionally, I have to skip beyond things, right? And the lion stalks the antelope, you know, and the lion rips the heart out of the antelope. I'm like, okay, we're going to skip that, you know, right? one of those. But the, the kids sometimes are like, no, I want to watch it. And I'm like, I don't know. It's maybe a bit much for a three-year-old here. So we'll skip beyond that. But we like the parts with the baby elephants, right? There's this whole, like, elephant troop, or I don't even know what you call it. Uh, uh, We're going to go with troop. There's all these elephants, and then they go to this watering hole. And the footage, again, that they get with these HD cameras now is just incredible. But they have all of these elephants, and there's these baby elephants that are then kind of wallowing in the mud, in this mud pit. It's just hilarious. The girls thought it was so funny. Rolling around in the mud and all this stuff. But now it's time for the elephants to leave. The mama elephants, the daddy elephants, they all start leaving and the baby elephants start trying to follow. The mud pit had been, you can imagine, muddy and watery and it had been dug kind of deeper with all these massive elephants digging and playing around it. And when the baby elephants get up to go and leave, they find that they can't get out of the mud pit. And we see the adult elephants standing on the outside of the mud pit watching the little baby elephants trying to escape and get out of the mud pit. And they let them struggle for a while. In fact, the baby elephants try to climb and then they slide back down. And they climb up again and they slide back down. And then the girls, my girls are laughing because they're rolling over and they're falling in the mud and they can't get out, you know? They think it's so funny. And then it's just this cool little moment where the mother elephant comes over and kind of takes her trunk and she she gets this muddy, you know, this really slimy looking baby elephant and kind of pushes it from behind, wraps her trunk around this little baby elephant and just pushes up, nudges up and allows it to escape the mud pit and continue on. And it just got me thinking regarding this whole sense of what we see in life, what we see in the Old Testament, what we see in this narrative of the Old Testament, that, that there's this shocking part in the narrative here that we come upon, that, that, that we've known for some time as we read the, the word, that we're well aware of, that we aren't going to save ourselves. We aren't going to escape this mud pit on our own. We've been waiting and listening and looking for a Messiah, a Savior, one who will come and put it all right, give us peace, who will save us. God's been working with Israel, developing them right up until now. And it's quite shocking because it's a mess right now. The nation is falling apart. They're no longer in their promised land. They're in exile. Sin, every character that we've seen, has, sin has destroyed. Almost every major character that we see is going to be the final one. And so what finally happens? Well, in this, just like in this mud pit, we're trying to get out. And who will be the one to come along and lead them out? Who will be that one? And so God reminds us in Isaiah. I want you to turn to Isaiah 53. One of the most, maybe you could say, most controversial and sometimes most, um, in many ways controversial, in many ways very well-known passages. We read it always in Good Friday and around Easter time in Isaiah 53. But when we look at it in contrast to all that we've seen so far. God is sending his suffering servant in the description of Isaiah 53 to come into the mud pit and rescue us out of it. Not just put an arm down and get us out of that mud pit, but rather to get into the mud and take on the mud for himself. To take on our sin and to bear it on his own so that we would escape. I know the illustration isn't perfect, but for some reason it works in my head. Isaiah 53, let's look at this sense. I'm not gonna read the whole chapter, and and what you'll find today is we're gonna be touching on a variety of different passages from the major prophets. But Isaiah 53 is this incredible passage where we, we get a sense of a servant who will come who will one day be highly exalted above all, and this servant who comes is gonna come like a root out of dry ground. Out of a barren desert, there's gonna be life that comes from it. He is, as verse three says of Isaiah 53:3, he is going to be despised. He's going to be rejected. This is gonna be a man of sorrows. He's gonna be well acquainted with grief. And as one who men hide their faces from him, he's gonna be despised, and others are gonna esteem him not. Surely this man, he has borne our griefs, our sickness, our, our the sin-sick soul is gonna be put on him in this sense. Right? He's gonna carry our sorrows, yet we're, not, we're gonna esteem him stricken. He's gonna be smitten by God. He's gonna be afflicted. He's gonna be pierced. I'm just going quickly here. Verse five says, he's gonna be crushed. His wounds, he's gonna have wounds. And then we, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And yet the Lord has laid on this suffering servant the iniquity of us all. What? Verse six. He's gonna take on our entire iniquity. Verse seven, he's gonna be oppressed. He's gonna be afflicted. He's gonna be like a lamb that's led to the slaughter. It goes on and on, and even in verse 11 and 12, it speaks of how this person, this one, this suffering servant who will be like a lamb, a sacrifice, he's gonna take on our iniquities. It's through him that many will be accounted righteous and pure and holy, and it will be in him that he will bear our iniquities. He's gonna pour out his soul to death and yet he's gonna bear the sin of many, it says in verse 12, and I know I'm going through all this quickly, he says this sense is so important for us to grasp that this kind of Messiah, this servant, this one who would come is going to bear our sin. He is going to walk through the pathway of suffering, bear our grief and sin and bring it on himself. It is this kind of figure that, that, pr- that we're looking for. It is this person who's gonna come down into the mud, the muck, and the mire and gonna rescue us out of it by taking on himself. So that's our sense that we look forward to and it's this servant who's gonna lead the people of God into a new way. He's gonna do a new thing and it's gonna be happening because yes, we have broken your law we have sinned against you. We are muddy, dirty. Lord, what are you gonna do about that? I'm gonna send my servant to rescue out of it and then I'm going to do something new. Turn over to Jeremiah 31. You guys are gonna have to keep up with me today. You guys ready for that, okay? Jeremiah 31, I'm speaking to the booth too, you know, so we'll see if they can keep up. Jeremiah 31, we're gonna be jumping around a little bit today. Jeremiah 31 says in verse 31, so Jeremiah 31, 31, where, where Jeremiah speaks of a new day, a new day dawning, and then he says that there will come a day where I will do a new thing, and this new thing will be a new covenant. Yes, you have broken the covenant. You have broken the law. Your sin condemns you, but I'm giving you a new covenant. Look at Jeremiah thirty-one, 31. I'm gonna turn your mourning into joy and all these things. And then he says in verse 31, behold, the days are coming. What a cool phrase. Oh, I love that. Just behold, the days are coming. Look to the future, people. Don't get so focused in what's going on right now. Look what the days are coming, declares the Lord. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Verse 32, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on that day, When I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, that's the book of Exodus, taking the people out, my covenant that they broke. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord. You can prefigure this picture of Hosea and Gomer, but uh, as I loved them, yet they broke the covenant. I was their husband and loved them, but they broke it. And, and so I, I'm going to continue to love them though. Verse 33 says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. No longer shall, they, shall each one teach his neighbor and each brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. a beautiful picture of God rescuing his people out of this muddy pit, rescuing them, yes, sending his servant down into it and then establishing a new promised covenant with these people. A new covenant, a new promise, a new way. Ezekiel 36 talks about it as well that I'm gonna in this new, 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 I'm gonna give them a new heart. I'm gonna write it not on tablets of stone but I'm gonna write this law in their heart and then I'm gonna put a new spirit within them. This Newness is a series of uh, of a theme that we see all throughout the Old Testament. There is a new day coming. There's a new temple, a new spirit, a new heart, a new life, a new birth. New, new, new. The law won't be written on tablets and scrolls anymore. It'll be written on the heart of man, and I will forgive them. And so this broken people, yes, the people have broken the law. They cry out and say, we are sinners. We are guilty and God says, I'm sending my suffering servant to rescue from that. He's gonna take on your sin and I am building and establishing a new covenant with my people one day. Look forward, behold, the days are coming. And God declares he's sending that, he's doing a new covenant and the prophet says to him, yes, the, but the people, we have sinned and, and then the prophets and the people cry out, but, but we are a conquered people. We, we are conquered, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, they have weighed laced to our nation. We're not even a nation anymore. We're an exile, they might say. The people are conquered. Well, God answers them in that. You're close. Maybe you're in Jeremiah 31. You're going to turn over to Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah 29 is one of the most famous verses in all the Bible, Jeremiah 29, 11. But if we look at the whole entirety of the chapter, it gives us a better sense of what's going on. Jeremiah 29 is an incredible chapter where the people are conquered. They're in exile. They're far away from their promised land, and they are looking for a word of hope. God sends this word of hope to the people who are in exile by way of Jeremiah's words. Jeremiah actually writes a little letter. He sends it with an envoy. He sends it in the mail, and it arrives in Babylon. And so look at Jeremiah 29, verse four. It says this, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent in exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So who's this written to? It's written to those people living in a foreign land, looking for hope Is God still in control? We are a conquered people. Not sure if Yahweh still knows what he's doing. And so, Jeremiah 29, he says, this is the word. Jeremiah 29, 4, this is verse 5. He says this, I'm writing this to you. Build houses and live in them. Uh, Plant gardens and eat their produce. Uh, Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease Verse 7, a really cool verse, he says, but seek the welfare of the city that I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for it's welfare, or shalom, and you too will find welfare and shalom. And then skip down to verse 10, for thus says the Lord, when the 70 years are completed for Babylon, meaning you will be in captivity and in exile for 70 years, you are going to be punished for the wickedness and the sin and your idolatry, but I am... I, am, I, am, I have a plan, trust me. So when the 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. I will fulfill you my promise and bring you back to this place. Verse 11, very well known. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for your welfare and shalom and not for evil, to give you a future and to give you a hope. Then, verse 12, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me, and when you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from where I have sent you into exile. God's word, through the word of Jeremiah, giving hope of a future and plans of God, that he's still in control even when you are in exile. Trust him, and yet while you are there, seek the welfare of where you live. Seek the peace and, and, and build houses. Live in them, exist, and thrive in the places that I have put you. And so the best example of living Jeremiah 29 out is in the literal um, picture and person of the person of Daniel. Daniel. Maybe you're familiar with the person of Daniel in the book of Daniel. Daniel as a character in the Old Testament is doing exactly what Jeremiah 29 says to do. Seek the welfare of the city that you live. Daniel was a young man as a boy who was taken away in exile, torn from his home and brought, into a, brought to a foreign land. It's in that foreign land where he seeks the welfare and the peace of the place that he lives and yet he does so not by becoming just like everyone else, but continuing to maintain the purity and holiness of God, that he was not going to neglect God. It's an incredible contrast. We see Daniel right on the offset, being challenged with the gods of Babylon versus the God of Yahweh. Yes, you're in a foreign land, but what does Daniel choose to do right from the beginning? I'm not gonna eat the portion of the king's meat. I'm not gonna defile myself by, um, by ignoring the laws and the standards of God. It is an incredible contrast for as you're reading through the Old Testament, you see king after leader after king after leader fail to do anything of the sort. They're constantly thinking about how can we be like the other nations? How can we adopt all the aspects and lifestyles and worship all the other gods of all the other nations? And then Daniel stands out like just this incredible contrasting character who says, even though he's not in the promised land, even though he's in exile, he says, I will not defile myself. I will obey the Lord and follow Yahweh wherever he places me. It's an incredible, an incredible story. His, his friends, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, choose to do the same again in a more public way. Everyone bow down to the idol that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. When the music plays, bow down, and they say, I, we will not bow down to you. The king rather says, well, then I'm gonna throw you in a burning, fiery furnace. Well, if you do, our God is able to rescue us from that furnace, O king. He is able, but if he does not, we will not bow down to you. We will stand loyal and faithful to our God. So they stand in opposition, even in a place of exile. Daniel is this incredible contrast to all of the things that have come before, that God is still in control, and God will bless those who follow him. And God uses uh, Daniel as a picture of Israel, really in so many ways, that look what I can do through one man, through his three friends. If you are pure and follow me with your whole heart, I will spread and make you as a light and a blessing to the nations all around And he does so through Daniel's testimony. King Nebuchadnezzar, King Darius, eventually from their very own mouths end up glorifying the Yahweh, the God of Israel, in a foreign land. It's incredible. Daniel is preaching to the people in exile and God rescues him out of the mouth of the lions in the lion's den. And and King Darius in that manner, in that sense, says, blessed be the God of Daniel. (laughs) Even in those places, even in those times, Jeremiah says to these people, seek uh, the lord he will be found and you follow him for he has a plan he has a future he has a hope and it's in this that the people say that we are uh, sinners we have broken your law god says i'm going to send you your servant i'm going to do a new i'm going to make a new covenant with your people with these people uh, we're a conquered people and he says exist and thrive where you are i will bless you in the place that you have and i'm still in control trust me in these things thrive in this place i have a plan i have a hope And the people say, yes, we might be conquered, but we are also a people who are scattered. We do not feel gathered again. We are scattered all over the place. We have no land to call our home. What are you going to do that? And we think about this in the Old Testament, how the mighty have fallen, like I've already described, Solomon and his temple and all his wealth and grandeur and might, the unity of the northern and southern kingdoms as one mighty empire and kingdom now has fallen Solomon, arrayed in all his glory, has now fallen, and wicked king after wicked king has led the people into exile. And judgment—what shame that we see—we're left to wonder how God will bring this all back together. The land in which Abraham has given—they are no longer in that land, but they're scattered abroad. God gives them a hopeful description of Himself. He describes Himself as one who will gather the the sheep back. He describes Himself as a shepherd you look with me in Ezekiel 34, I'm going to run through a couple passages here that remind us that God is our shepherd. Psalm 23, one of the most comforting passages. I just read it at the funeral on the graveside there this week that the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. It makes me lie down in green pastures. You're familiar with the passage, but the Lord is my shepherd. An incredible picture of God and his character that he is a consistent shepherd to gather the sheep. Ezekiel 34 in the chapter in verses 15 and 16 it describes God in this incredible way as he says that the Lord is going to seek them out. He will be like a shepherd who seeks out his flock. In verse 15 he says this of Ezekiel 34, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost and bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak. And the fat and the strong I will destroy and I will feed them in justice. He reminds the people of God that the shepherds of Israel that supposed to be guarding the flock will no longer eat of their own flock. Meaning the kings and those who are leading and shepherding the people were uh, false he calls them in this sense like these false teachers, these wolves, these false, uh, false shepherds. No longer will they feed themselves, but I, the good shepherd, will feed you. Back in Jeremiah, you don't need to turn there, but it says in Jeremiah 31.10, hear the word of the Lord, Jeremiah 31.10, hear the word of the Lord, O nations who scattered Israel, will, uh, he who scattered Israel will gather them and will keep them as a shepherd keeps his flock. Isaiah 40.10 reminds us of the good and gentle shepherd. Isaiah 40.10, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. I love this picture. He will gather the lambs. Not only is God mighty and strong and powerful, but he is a tender, good shepherd. He gathers these young lambs. He will carry them close to him in his bosom, and he will gently lead those that are with him that are young. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. In the New Testament, Jesus typifies himself as the good shepherd. John 10, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep hear my voice. John 10, I am the good shepherd. He gathers people together. This is the shepherd who will lead them, who will save them. Isaiah 40 speaks about this voice crying out in the wilderness, this herald John the Baptist in the New Testament that will lead the people, make straight the path in the wilderness, make straight the way for the good shepherd to lead the sheep to salvation. And this is what we see happen in the new. Yes, the people have broken the law, the people are conquered, the people are scattered, but God is going to bring and be the good shepherd to gather them again. And yet the most disturbing thing of all that we see in the Old Testament, especially Especially for the people of Israel. The most disturbing thing we see is this final point that what we see in the Old Testament happen in a most extraordinary way in Ezekiel chapter 10, we're going to get there in a moment, is that God's presence has left the building. It, Think about this for a moment, this fact that from the beginning in Exodus, we see God's presence, yes, being with the people of God in this pillar of fire and a cloud, leading the people wherever they will go. God's presence dwelt on Mount Sinai. God's presence descended and dwelt in the tabernacle. They carried it with them wherever they were. They built the tabernacle, uh, the temple, and then Solomon built this extraordinary temple in this very extraordinary way. God's presence came and fell on that temple and dwelt there in the presence and in the midst of of God's people, and then... After all the idolatry and sin, eventually in Ezekiel 10, we get this disturbing picture where it's described through a vision, through Ezekiel's words. We get Ezekiel chapter 10, verse 18. And it says in a a longer chapter, you can read it on your own, but in the whole chapter, but in verse 18, it says, the glory of the Lord went out. It went out from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim it goes on and stood at the entrance of the east gate. It exited the temple mount. And the Lord and the glory God of Israel was over them. And it, and it continued and it says the glory of God, the presence of God leaves the building. It leaves the temple. Eventually we know the temple is way laced and destroyed. Devastation, there's depression. Hope seems lost. It's almost like we are like this boat listlessly floating in the wide Pacific with no wind in our sails. They're the doldrums of life, this sense that there is no spirit, there is no presence of God to energize and give life. We starve and die with no wind, we will go nowhere. The car has no gas, the phone has no charge. We are empty and useless. Ezekiel 11 describes how the people of God have multiplied the slain. They have murdered people in the streets. They've committed adultery, idolatry, and every sin in between. They have multiplied it. And Ezekiel 11 talks about that. And then he says, I have scattered you because of this, but I will gather you again. And when I do, Ezekiel 11 gives this incredible, amazing, powerful, hopeful message to these people who have just seen through this vision of Ezekiel the presence of God leave the very temple in which God has dwelt with them. And he says, one day, look at Ezekiel 11. Uh, let's look at verse verse 16. I don't know if I have all of these. We'll look at particular verse 19, but verse 16 says, Therefore says the Lord God, though I remove them far from among the nations, though I have scattered them among the countries, yet I have been a sanctuary to them for a while in the countries that they have gone Therefore, thus says the Lord, I will gather you from the peoples and from among the countries you have been scattered. I will give you the land of Israel one day. And verse 19 says, and I will give them one heart. Look at verse 19, Ezekiel 11. I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statues and keep my rules and obey them that they will be my people and I will be their God but as for those whose heart goes among the detestable things and the abominations I will bring their deeds upon their heads also the Lord God says I will give them a new heart a new spirit I will bring with them the heart of stone I will replace it with a heart of flesh This is exactly what we see described in probably the most famous passage in the book of Ezekiel. That if I asked you what in the world Ezekiel's talking about, most people would have no idea. But they're familiar with maybe one chapter in the book of Ezekiel, and that's chapter 37. Ezekiel 37 speaks about the valley of dry bones. And in that valley, we see all that just been talked about start to come to its fruition, this sense of a valley full of dry, dead men's whitewashed bones, lacking spirit, lacking flesh, stone, rock, cold, dead. And it is that God, through the Spirit of God, through the prophet here in Ezekiel, breathe on them the breath of life. And it is in the rattling and the sound and the rushing of the wind that the Spirit of God comes and it fills this valley of dry bones and flesh starts to attach themselves to the bones and the bodies start to take form and shape and an army of God is present again, alive with vitality. We see the spirit flood into these bones and provide life. A resurrection, you could say. That what was dead and gone, hopelessly lost, is now alive with a great future ahead of it. God's presence dwells there. God's presence descends and the spirit fills this place. He's saying, look forward to that day. I am bringing a valley like that. I am going to do that again. A new spirit, a new heart. And then, at the end, the very end of all of this, God says that, yes, the temple has been destroyed. The Spirit of God has left the temple, but I am building a new temple. And in very symbolic language, Michael Williams writes this, that Ezekiel describes a future place where God will dwell with his people that will exude life This place will teem with fish and animals and fruit trees and all kinds will grow and produce abundant fruit and from this new place of God's presence described in the terms of a new temple that he's building, life-giving and life-healing water would flow. For our last passage, I want you to look at Ezekiel 47. Ezekiel 47 describes as Ezekiel sees this this vision of a new temple that's coming. Yes, one will be destroyed, but a new one will come, unlike any we've seen before. And in this new temple, there will be something flowing from this temple, from this place, it says in Ezekiel 47.1, when he brought me back to the door of the temple, behold, water was issuing from below, the threshold of the temple toward the east. Water was flowing down, it said. And then on this verse 12, you skip to Ezekiel forty seven twelve. It says on the banks on both sides of the river there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water from them which flows from the sanctuary, their fruit will be their food and their leaves for healing. It is from this New Temple, the spiritual temple that will flow water that will give life that will give healing that will give eternal life and it is about six hundred years later where we see Jesus Christ walk up to this this well about six hundred years after this, Jesus walks up to this well, still kind of a figure that 's unknown to a people at that time, and he walks as a teacher as a man, a messiah known to some but not known by others walks up to a well and he encounters a woman he speaks to the Samaritan woman and she's looking for water she's looking for hope she's looking for, for anything in her life to take away the muck and the mire that she's in she's dwelled and she's, en- she's encompassed about by, by sin and her lifestyle and her reproach that's on her and Jesus walks up to her and says whoever drinks of the water that I give them will never be thirsty again The water that I will give them will become in him a spring of water welling up in eternal life. Water that flows from this temple, that flows through Jesus, that flows now into this Samaritan woman, that washes her clean of all of her sin and guilt and shame and gives her a life-breathing spirit. A valley of dry bones that existed within her is now full of spirit, vitality, life it is in her that a spring of water now wells up in eternal life that one day we see pictured in Revelation 22, 1. And the angel showed me the river of the water of life, broad as bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, on either side of the river, the tree of life with twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit in each month, the leaves of the truth of the tree were healing for the nations. And at the end of that chapter, it says, The Lord will reign forever and ever. The picture of God's presence leaving. The presence that we see in season two. The presence of God dwelling as Emmanuel, God with us. And from Him, the the side of Jesus, His blood and the water that poured from Him will then pour into every one of you. When you believe and you trust in Him, you too can receive the healing water, the water that gives you life eternal a water that flows from God, yes, the throne of God in His holiness, and the Lamb that makes that possible for that water to then flow down into people like you and me. It's an incredible story. It's an incredible picture. And it's not just a story, it's true. <laughs> and it's, it's real. And I pray that if you don't know this story, you don't know this water, you're you're still thirsting for something eternal. You're still thirsting for life eternal. I pray that today would be your day of salvation. (laughs) It'd be a day where you recognize that that the Lord, is your salvation. If you wanna meet with somebody after the service, there'll be people up here that can pray with you. There'll be people like myself and others who could meet and talk with you and show you from the scripture of how you can know this Jesus too, this one who comes and gives you spiritual life.